0: Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken.
1: On this episode of Why Make, we are talking with the wood-turning luminary David Ellsworth, a resident of Weaverville, North Carolina, and on, Rob, I believe you met him first when you were at Anderson Ranch.
0: Yeah, it was uh, 2011, and I I assisted a master class with, with David. I was basically the the bandsaw and chainsaw guy that got all the stock ready for, for the students to start turning. And uh, it was a pretty cool experience and a really wild one at that. Um, I walked in on the beginning of a class on a Monday morning and there was everybody laying, out, laying down on the floor, meditating. So it was it was a cool introduction to, to David and the
1: way that he does his work. So here we go. Our conversation with David Ellsworth. I think I do want to just sort of go back to your post-working in polymer or non-functional objects, your, your first experiences with the lathe and that form of working. Um, and obviously so, it set something off in you that created right. so a whole lifetime a, worth of work. Early, yeah. early mid-70s or late 60s to um,
0: where you're really...
2: Well, go, go back to 1956, no, 58. Uh, I was 14 woodshop class, did all the requisite drawings and tools and everything and built the correct projects and everything. And then the last thing was the lathe, which was the machine over in the corner. Very typical Uh, (laughs) of that era. Of course, in this era, there is no shop. But um, I did a two-foot diameter tray out of 24 pieces of walnut for my mother, Mm -hmm. right? Still have it. And wow. Elmer's yeah. glue all. Thank you. Um, and I found it compelling. It it was like it it drew me in as a centering process, which is what ceramics is, uh, throwing on a wheel. It's what glass is on a punty stick. It's what beadwork is that Wendy does. It's a centering process. It isolates your own thoughts. Um, that you're either conscious or unconsciously uh, producing and gets right down to the business at hand. You don't make a mistake, in other words. You know the contact between steel and wood when it's spinning. It's like a chainsaw. It's really immediate. And I found that it drew me in that circulating concept of pulling the process down to a productive every single cut was productive and but at that age i had to figure out how to make it thing flat beyond the fact that it was glued together from three quarter inch or one inch planks and now i just turned i just took a framing square and rubbed it up against it while it was spinning and all the high spots the the abraded spots on the wood i just took a scraper and scraped them off and suddenly i had a flat surface then I swept it with my fingers and felt or learned to feel that surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not conscious that I actually closed my eyes or looked away, but I, because that's what I teach today, is learning how to feel the surface, the volume of a curve, in other words, as opposed to the look of a curve. And so I'm translating those early experiences uh, to what I'm doing today. Just by virtue of having experienced something that nobody taught me, but it just happened that way because the teacher didn't know how to use the stuff. I mean, he, his his education, of course, was in safety. He knew how to run the machines, but he, of course, but it was all based on safety. Yeah, here's how he was, not to
0: cut yourself. <laughs> yeah,
2: he was. He wasn't a maker at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just produced a lot of makers. He <laughs> produced a <them>, lot right? <laughs> so that,
1: that, that was sort of your big that aha? Was my,
2: that, that was my aha moment.
1: That, it, that, it's, it, that it's a tactile thing as, yeah. as almost as much as it's a visual thing.
2: Absolutely.
1: If that's a correct interpretation. And I, yes,
2: it is. And I use a, 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 a reference today that line is volume as opposed to line as shape In the, in relation to the pieces that I make so i'm i'm thinking of a sphere for instance the perfect you know everybody knows a sphere universal concept and then i'm distorting that sphere in a way in the shapes that i make in a way that a ceramist would explore experience and explore different shapes on a wheel and when i get done with it i know that i'm not making a candle holder mm-hmm. i'm making a volume form and i and i conceptualize the wood itself through a very thin wall, which is what I'm, I love to do, and that's what I'm known for, as a surface um, on which or, or with which it defines the volume of the interior, the negative space inside of that pot, which is why I call them pots rather than vessels. Um, and, and I, in, in light of that, It gives me total freedom to squeeze it here or expand it there or whatever, but I'm interested in the volume of the form and that involves line as opposed to, this is a recognizable cup, but it has lines to it that integrate with curves. That's not what my work does. On top of that, I work with green material, which I consider to be live material, whereas Mm -hmm. dry wood to me is dead. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. It's just pretty,
1: right? So this, so even after you've made your last cut, as it dries, it's going to continue to shape and change.
2: Exactly, and and I remember years ago getting a mesquite log in from Texas, not realizing how stable that stuff is, <laughs> and I turned a couple of a couple of vessels forms out of it. At those times, I was calling them vessels. And it didn't move, and I was terribly disappointed. I gave the thing away to another friend of mine because it didn't change. There was no interaction between the object and me once it was made. And I've always felt that uh, if, if it doesn't give something back to you, you have not put enough into it to give it that energy to come back to you. And you can do it. And then I do a whole study on, on different species and different moisture contents by feeling it rather than measuring it. Oh wow! And I know, That's... I know, I can project what it's going to do once it's done, but I can't project how much it's going to do it.
1: So you've studied it enough to the point where you have an It's not random change. So that as the, the material as it dries and moves and changes, to me in some ways I think of as internal to that piece of wood. I have no control over it. You're viewing it as in that you actually have enough knowledge of you've turned it this then it's whatever, it's popular. It's going to react in a certain way and that you are somehow able to direct the change that happens.
2: I can direct it, but I can't predict it. Right. And I don't want to predict it.
1: You want to let it do what it's I going to I want to, to do. let
2: it do its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to convince the general public of this is, <laughs> is like pulling teeth. But it's got to stay flat. Right. <laughs> and um, I mean, there are just numerous stories about right <laughs> of how that responds. Um, probably the best one is and this is, relates directly back to why I make is the emergence pieces that I'm doing now. These telescopic pieces in that I'm using black ash burl because once it dries, it is fairly stable. And it has to be stable or I can't accelerate the forms inside, outside of one another. So I got a hold of this really hot chunk of, of um, hickory burl two oh. years ago. Ah. And I had not been able to work with hickory burl uh, very much, but I knew that it moved. And it was a question of how much it would move and what direction. Well, this was a shagbark hickory burrow, and I'd been used to working with with pignut hickory burrow. And I brought it down down here, and I cut it up as soon as we got here and let it sit for a year. And about a month ago or two months ago, I started uh, processing it. I couldn't get it apart. (laughs) It had changed so much that it had welded itself. All these pieces had welded themselves together, so my concept of what I wanted to do it with it suddenly had to change because the material guided me. It took on it; followed my lead. It says, you know, I'm not doing what you want me to do with this thing. <laughs> I'm doing my own thing. I was able to get one piece out of it, which is down at the gallery, a small piece, but the larger piece is sitting down there. It's, a, it's a, like this, and... And I got two or three pieces off of it, but that's all. So
0: it challenged you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenge, and that's yeah. why
2: I say it's alive. Mm-hmm. And we know that wood never stops moving. Right. Uh, much to the chagrin of those who f- fill holes with turquoise and superglue. But um, <laughs> the, <laughs> they'll learn. But <laughs> maybe. I don't but know. It, I don't think they will. <laughs> uh, probably not. But um, how, how, they, how it, it changes, if it doesn't affect you intellectually or spiritually, how can you justify going back and making more of the same thing unless you call it production work? It's just production work one at a time instead of one of a kind. And that's a question that every maker has to come up with in their own mind in relation to the bottom line in that respect is paying your own bills. In other words, selling work. Right, and, and I, I think
1: you said in your early career you created that dichotomy by just creating two different booths. Mm-hmm. Booth A is production work and booth B is... Is, is, is artwork. Is, is artwork, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think, you know, I don't know how Rob addresses that issue, um, but I just... I 'm too broke to buy two
0: booths, so I just combine them and, and, and explain to people yeah, yeah. I <laughs> mean, so, but the same concept like there's a dichotomy of the work that I do too, and yeah I mean, I mean less so for you,
1: Eric, I think you know, no, but I've, i don 't know I've i 've mean, got production accessories, and then i 've got you know, i I just think yeah. of the work I do for money as driving a cab, I think I have my you know with, right. with my skill set i i can I can drive the cab to take clients to their homes or I can drop them off in the middle of nowhere and don't make any money. <laughs> the analogy is going nowhere. But no, I do think no, of it. No, it as, is, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> no, I think I have, I, have, I have a utilitarian way to express my skills and right. then I have the stuff that I do that is purely about me and my soul and that makes me feel yeah. whole.
2: And, and both are valid. And this is where the, the art craft concept breaks down because if you feel the value of craft as opposed to the worth, the worth being what you pay for it, but the value is what lasts forever, if you wish. Mm-hmm. In, in artwork and, and in craft work, they're absolutely equal. In it, it, what I say equal is there's no hierarchy between the two, or there, there is in terms of the real world, but conceptually by themselves, there's no hierarchy. They have their own values. It's just that in creating the hierarchy, we've diminished craft, and in, and validated that diminishing concept by renaming institutions, for, right. for errant reasons. So we're constantly working this. I'm working on a lecture now that I'm going to give in a couple of weeks at the AAW conference on how to define, if you wish, or explain, or talk about an art woodturning as an art form how has it grown over the last 40 years from what it was when i came into it to what it is today mhm what are the what are the mechanisms that allowed that to happen what are the pitfalls in doing it
0: um, where's this uh, conference going to be in raleigh oh it is yeah. oh yeah. yeah that might be interesting it's to the the come check AOW out it's the AW conference yeah will
2: yeah. be it'll be a big one it will probably wow. be about 12 1500 people there and 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 Betty Scarpino and I are going to head the conference off oh, in this wow. talk on uh, on the transformation of how to how to evolve as an art form. And I, it's my term now uh, that I brought her in on, and she's going to explain it from her point of view, and I'm going to explain it from my point of view, and neither one of us knows what the other is going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and that's part of the beauty of it, yeah, you see. Yeah, Wow. I mean,
1: I was going to say, and it's all equally legitimate. I mean, you, we, you know, you look at the progression of any of the typical craft fields into into the art world. I mean, I'm just not, I'm just so unsure how, how these terms are even useful. But, you know, ceramics was a typical, you know, people made bowls, they made production. Then all of a sudden people, you know, this whole tradition of making teapots that were utterly... Dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the field. You know, you have a you have a medium, and you have a progression of thought. Glass did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Traditional glassmakers they turned out beautiful, beautiful wine goblets. But then wow. all of a sudden somebody said, "Well, this material can do so many more things." Yeah. And and, yeah. and and I guess my perspective on it is, wood turning is just following on that same tradition. Absolutely.
2: It's doing exactly the same thing. In in forming the American Association of Woodturners in 1985, we stepped into that pool of forming a national organization. And the only thing that I suggested uh, to the board when we first started out, because I was the first president of that group, was that we needed to maintain a sense of inclusiveness to this group as opposed to exclusiveness. So we brought in as best we could and continue to do so in the journal we put out six times a year and the conferences that we have and the lectures and everything else, we brought in the concept of, of artwork as well as utilitarian functional work within the same venue. Yeah. And we That's... gave it same equal space for both. and Yet, you talk to a, a traditional woodturner today and they say well the journal's just full of all this fancy stuff with paint and piercing and i can't stand it and i said how about the articles on process and technique well i don't remember seeing those and they're 3 quarters of every issue. <laughs> well, I mean unfortunately
1: in our society, I mean this is a this is an age old argument. I mean, I know in the early days of the furniture society when I was involved in it I mean, there was the the whole thing. The traditional woodworkers felt like they weren't given there. They were given short shrift because it was all these college educated, the, all these art furniture, and all the the whole artiture movement completely offended it. And then, <laughs> and so they split off and they formed their own organization, their own yeah. the, whatever, the Society of Traditional Furniture Makers. And, right. and
2: uh, yeah. I know. And Again, it's happened know. in woodturning also.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So is the, does but they the, think it's a new idea? <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, do you still strive for that element of, of inclusivity? Absolutely. Every, every
2: Absolutely. Day? I mean, we're outnumbered for one thing, 100 mm-hmm. <laughs> like to one, 99 to one. But we, the, art, the art makers, if you wish, it's not a term I've ever used before, but the art makers um, get all the attention. Because there's that concept, secret concept of fashion involved in it, no matter what we do. Um, It is a decorative art. It belongs in the decorative art departments of the universities and the museums, with the things that we do. Same as Tiffany and whatever. Uh, Because we are not sculpture or painting, per se. And as long as that becomes the distinguishing factor from society... That's we get where we get that. Uh, the Miami show, it, you know, people walk in with million-dollar checkbooks and they buy painting or they oh, the buy art, sculpture. art Basil or whatever. Yeah. Art yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, we have to look at what we're doing with a sense of pride, and why we make is great part of that. And but that can only be answered by the person doing the make, doing the work. And they have to justify in their own mind, through their experiences, uh, uh, within the venues that we provide for them, which could be conferences, it could be craft shows, it could be gallery shows, it could Mm -hmm. be museum acquisitions, all these things, where they fit. And suddenly you realize they're part of a huge, huge field that they didn't realize they were part of.
1: Well, it's a a whole continuum. I mean, I I think you just put... I think you just put the whole reason for the podcast in a nutshell. I mean, why we, <laughs> why we make is is the whole reason we're talking to you. I mean, yeah. uh, yeah. it's it's uh, at its root is craft. It's a skill. It's a technique, yeah. That's and right. and where you choose to take that is a part and parcel of who you are. Whether that right. whether that mm-hmm. be um, functional objects or whether that be art, and uh, and I think it's important that in any field you'd be inclusive. I mean, there's the, the basic ground level of knowledge that we all have to have, and yeah. then we take we take that level of those base skills or knowledge and we take that to whatever level of who we are because yeah. it's yeah. a part of our own personal discovery. Yeah, and it's di- yeah.
0: It's gonna be different for everybody. That's
1: the beauty of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean what would it be like if the AAW was all our turners? Yeah, it it would
2: it'd be, be pretty boring. Yeah, I mean, or pretty garish. Or, or. Or it could be that, too. Yeah, yeah I
1: yeah. mean, so... I mean, so circle this back to why do you make?
2: Well, this gets into why am I doing these, this new group of pieces that has nothing to do with the lathe.
1: Yeah, so so and, go with
2: that. And, and that goes back to...
0: And these new pieces, e- e- explain the title and... and Emergence...
2: Uh, is the title of the series. Okay. Each one has a colored line in it that starts at the bottom and goes to the top through mm-hmm. these individual segments. And they're individually titled Line Ascending, 1, 2, 3, 4, and et cetera. And I'll probably end up doing about 30. And I'm at halfway there now. Maybe a little more. It depends on many factors. But I was in our place in Colorado where I had a shop six years ago and Mark Lindquist sent me a chunk of pecan burl that he knew I couldn't turn
1: as a taunt and a
2: <laughs> pecan as a taunt yes
0: and Mark Lindquist is another he's a, he's, turner
2: he's another great sculptor and turner in our field opened doors for huge people and influenced great areas in our field and it was tapered from one side down to the other mm-hmm. and it was Layers like a cake of burl and bark and burl and bark, and the bastard knew I couldn't turn it, and he said, <laughs> "I'm,", I'm inv- he said, "I'm involved in a project, and the project is a collector of mine has a has a pecan tree that's four feet in diameter, gorgeous pecan tree, and he's taking it down, and we're going to do a video on this for public television, which he has." Created hasn't put it on, but it's created. And I'm sending a chunk of wood to three of my friends in the country, and you're one of them, of course. So, when you, whatever you do with it, deliver it to his place in Johns Creek, Georgia, which is a northeastern suburb of Atlanta, mm-hmm. and and you'll get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Pure and simple. I've never done a commission. I resist commissions like crazy. But this was a challenge that I couldn't resist. It, it sounds more
1: like a challenge than a commission. Yeah. With, a, with the with this, like, whatever you do, you're going to get paid.
2: Right. And so I'm in Colorado at 8,500 feet at the time. And I pull this thing out, and it's green. And I don't have a clue as to what I'm going to do with it. I just know I can't do what I've done because it was the wrong shape. Can't make a hollow form out of it. So I put it back in a plastic bag and that into the cardboard box, and, and, I, and I sealed it up. And this is in September. We're nearing the end of our three months out there. And on the way home, I started thinking from a much broader perspective why he sent it to me and what, what I might do with it that would justify the concept in his mind without making something for Mark but making something for me. Hmm. And then I realized, you know, I used to make really tall hollow forms. Up to 37 inches off the tool rest was my record depth with a handheld tool. I wow. was pretty proud of that because it worked <laughs> all the way up. But for years, I did taller and taller and taller pieces. But I don't have the physicality any longer. So I'm not going to go back that and chase that rabbit down the hole again. So I set that aside. And all this I'm thinking... Lineality, lineality. How can I get lineality back into my work? So we're driving home. This thing is wrapped up in the back of the van. And it suddenly dawned on me the Cub Scout cup.
1: Oh, the the folding (laughs) cup. The folding cup. The collapsible
0: cup. Yeah,
2: the collapsible folding (laughs) cup. I had one of those. (laughs) And I said, forget about the lathe. Go to the bandsaw. And I said, oh, this is going to shake everything up because... I can't show them at the A.W. conferences because they're not dirty. <laughs> So that was the start of it. And I got home. In February, Wendy took off for one of the eight trips that she's made to Kenya and left me for six weeks by myself. And I took that chunk out of there and I said, Okay, let's see what we can do with a bandsaw on this. So I carved a shape out on the bandsaw, a big bandsaw, just an abstract shape. And then I went in a quarter of an inch and turned right and went around the piece and came back to the same spot, took that ring now and set it aside, and then went in again a little deeper and did another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. and put them all together. And then they were they were damp so, still. So um, I let them dry out a bit. And then one day I went up with a, a, a caulking gun of PL construction adhesive, which is a polyurethane. So <laughs> real hard when it dries. And I started with the smallest portion and I started gluing them together. And as I started gluing them together, all of a sudden... They didn't fit, you see, because they had the curve of the band and they had the sanded surface on mm-hmm. one side. So now that opening, which is now in the neighborhood of a 16th to an 8th of an inch, suddenly provided movement for the whole thing.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: And by the time I got it glued together, I had to do it two or three at a time because I couldn't manage holding them together while I'm adding another one. And so it took four or five days to glue the whole thing together. It came out. Little over five feet tall. Wow. (laughs) That's what I thought when I got done with it. And then I went back to my fine arts background and I said, be careful for two reasons. One is, don't Wherever this goes, don't forget the level of naivete that you need to introduce to each piece in order to give it that energy it needs to continue to grow to where it's going to go in the next few pieces. And second of all, you know damn well if you make a really good piece and it becomes a series, you've got to do better the second <laughs> the second piece that you do. In other words, don't be satisfied with what you've got just because you happen to like it at that time because you don't have any perspective on it at the time that you make it. So it could be a disaster of a series just because the first one is so good. Well, let's find out if it's going to be good or not. So I may finish the piece and... Left it in the studio, and Wendy came back, and she took one look at it. She said, "What the hell are you doing? This is wonderful." I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so, that's in a nutshell. So that summer, um, we did a driving tour of different chapters in the southeast, and we planned it around stopping in Atlanta to different chapters of AAW of AAW. Thank you, and and we decided to determined that we would deliver this piece at that time, which we did. The only problem was the guy wasn't going to be home the day that we delivered it, oh, wow. which is a whole other story. Yeah, But he obviously loved it because he did send me a check for more than I thought it was going to be and less than it, for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I didn't put a price on it. I didn't know what Mark had told him the price was, but Mark knows the prices of my pieces.
1: Yeah. right.
2: So he knew... The ballpark because he didn't know what i was going to do with it either
1: well he assumed you were going to try and attempt to turn exactly
2: it. exactly so it was a it was an average price for so me. your first commission was a success without <laughs> the term you're
1: right <laughs> and did you ever present that piece at the aaw or you nope. no
2: no nope.
1: you, you didn't want to open up that can of worms
2: not them i needed more work i needed to get some perspective myself on them And I've done 15 of those pieces now. Mm -hmm. One of them's downstairs that you've seen. Um, I hesitate to say that some are more successful than the others because it's not really about success. It's about the image that they project when you stand there and look at something that's as tall as you are. And then I did a show, a year-long show, at the Philadelphia Art Museum that was generated by a woman named... Elizabeth Agro, who was the curator at the museum, and she saw these. She saw one of these pieces that I had done at the Center for Art and Wood in Philadelphia mm-hmm. that's seven feet tall, and she said, I want to come up to your studio and look at other pieces, and so she did, and uh, she selected three of them, and, uh, and a total of 18 pieces went into that show. And three of them, the two biggest pieces. One was a, sol- a, a, a solstice piece. The black pieces with the paint on it mm-hmm. is about as tall as this table, a little taller. And about so by so. And that tall eight foot or seven foot piece for their permanent collection had bought it from me. Which was a major event for a museum to buy a wood turning as opposed to having a collector donate it. And they get the tax write-off. and I end up paying the taxes on the price. Those
0: are in the Philadelphia Museum of Art? Yeah.
2: Wow. And, well, what that did was it gave validity to the whole series that a museum would actually acquire a piece like that. It also set up a standard for a reference to the price of a piece like that because they're buying it as sculpture. And so I just kept making in the meantime. And uh, you'll see the results of the gallery tonight for the most current of current. And uh, there are five or six that they've got at, right. the, at the gallery.
1: And, and, and the title Emergency, Emergence comes out of sort of as you, have you, as as you, sta- as you stack the pieces. That's right. the, the piece really emerges exactly. because you don't really know what direction, right. how it's, what it's character is going to be. The creative process
2: is in the gluing together. It's the construction of it. The mechanical part is the cutting of it. And everything that has a sense of creativity has to be manipulated in some form, whether it's a pencil on a piece of paper or whatever it might be, a brush to a piece of paper or a canvas. And in this case, it's a bandsaw to a chunk of wood.
1: And they're green, so they continue to move. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. They do continue.
2: Yeah. And uh, what I do technically is is not involved in this, thing, is I dry them for a year first mm-hmm. after they've been cut, so that they don't change. When
0: you dry them, you, did you dry them together in the in the I tight We weren't going to
2: get one? into technique. It's <laughs> not technique. It's
0: your newest work.
1: Right. I
2: wrap the outside of the form with stretch wrap and jack them up and sticker them underneath <laughs> so they breathe from both sides.
1: That's great. right. And and I guess you use the word turning when you, uh, just a minute ago, so obviously there's, there's some acceptance now as they are adjacent to the turning field. Well, we don't know. You don't know. The mystery.
2: Yeah, and, and the other part of the emergence title is me emerging out of the quote craft concept into the quote art concept Gaining validation from the museum acquisition for the art concept. Well, because you're breaking are. ground. Yeah.
1: Literally, with you know, being having your pieces bought by the that's Philadelphia the, Museum that's of part, Art. Right. That's the point. And also, sort of reinforcing the point that you can reemerge at any point in your
2: career. Exactly. And I was reading just last week in Rolling Stone, which we take we subscribe to, uh, uh, an, an interview with. Uh, with um, uh, who's the radio announcer in New York that creates so much controversy? Howard Stern. Howard Stern. Yeah. Where he said he made a conscious shift after much therapy to change his entire approach to interviewing from insulting people to including people, mm-hmm. and it was the best thing he ever did.
1: Yeah. And you you followed that same path
2: without and, without realizing in my and, own way without own realizing
1: yeah it that seems to be like the perfect way to wrap this up i mean it just seems like this has been a absolutely wonderful conversation uh here with david ellsworth and yeah it's been a a real so much for real
0: pleasure
2: talking with you oh good yeah it's been it's been yeah it's been fun for me too of course
0: cool Um, well thank you david yeah Yeah, thanks
1: why make why make
2: why make